Hey Conjurers, I'm Sham. And I'm Steph. Alaska is known for its beautiful scenery of mountains, glaciers, and solitude, often attracting hunters who are drawn to its dense and vast wilderness. Not everything is so peaceful about this snowy state, though. Over 2,000 people go missing without a trace every year there. Even though in the 70s, Alaska was the place people came to disappear intentionally for a while, today I want to tell you the story of 17 women who didn't get to make that choice on their own. In the 1970s, crime was at its peak all over the United States, and Alaska was no exception. In 1971, women began vanishing without a trace from Anchorage. Prostitution was a commonplace, and even during the cold winters, many women were desperate for income and were left with no choice but to work in any weather condition. Fourth Avenue in downtown Anchorage was home to sketchy bars, strip clubs, and come nightfall, sex workers. This street would also become known as the last place many women were ever seen. On July 21st of 1980, building workers discovered a shallow grave on the Elk Utna Lake Road. In that grave was a half-eaten body of a young woman that appeared to be in her late teens to early 20s. She was suspected to be one of the many missing dancers from downtown Anchorage, but her body was so badly decomposed it was impossible to get a positive identification. The police made a facial reconstruction and released it to the public, but she was never identified. She became known to investigators as the Elk Utna Annie. That same month, another local dancer was found in the same area in a gravel pit. DNA identified her as Joanne Messina. Her body was as badly decomposed as Elk Utna Annie, and there was little evidence to be found with her remains. It's so sad when murder victims can't be identified. The victim and their loved ones never really get closure. I wonder why they couldn't get a DNA match for this first girl like they did for Joanne. I'm guessing maybe she was missing certain body parts, or maybe her grave was easier to get to for animals. Yeah, you're probably right. So you said there were many missing dancers. Did they find any others? On August 13th of 1982, two off-duty police officers were out hunting moose by the Kanik River, It's about 20 miles northeast of Anchorage when they stumbled upon partially buried human remains in a shallow grave. The following day, investigators went to go check out the scene and found clothing in a 22 shell casing. After having the teeth of the victim examined, dental records confirmed that it was the body of 22-year-old Sherry Morrow. Sherry was an exotic dancer who had been reported missing by her boyfriend one year prior. The gold pendant she was known to never take off was missing. Sherry's friend, Lisa Nyland, later shared that Sherry was an aspiring model and went off to meet with a professional photographer who offered her $300 to take her picture. At least she told her friend that she was meeting this so-called photographer, but never meet up with a stranger alone. She should have taken her boyfriend with her or something. Right. If this is a legit photographer, he wouldn't have an issue with her bringing a friend. And as a photographer myself, I take my husband to most of my sessions, and I allow models I'm shooting to bring someone they trust. There's no reason to not allow that. Exactly. If someone tells you to come alone, you should be suspicious. On September 2nd of 1983, two construction workers were working on developing a new road and stumbled upon human remains, not far from where the remains of Sherry had been. At the time, this part of the Kanik River was remote and could only be accessed by boat or plane. 
The remains found were 17-year-old Paula Golding. She was an out-of-work secretary that had relocated from Hawaii to Alaska. She had been missing for five months, and to make ends meet, she had taken a job as an exotic dancer. The same size shell casing found previously was also found at her shallow grave. These two discoveries set off alarm bells for investigators. The fact that both girls' deaths had been so similar and they were found in the same area left the police believing there had to be more. They began to revisit missing persons files of girls working in the sex industry, but because they were adults and at the time women in the industry were known to take that next flight out of the city, it was hard to separate the two. These cases are absolutely looking connected. Clearly a serial killer who knew that targeting women in high-risk industries would make it harder to catch him. He chose the most vulnerable and unbelievable women to go after. Well, now at least they have some evidence. What were they able to find out? The Alaskan state troopers sent the evidence from both crime scenes to the FBI headquarters to be analyzed. The first thing the FBI did was run a test on both shell casings to see if they were both shot from the same gun. The results of this test was positive that both girls were murdered by the same gun. While the Alaskan state troopers sent a team out to hunt this killer in the woods, the Alaskan PD were dealing with the nightlife downtown Anchorage. During this time, Alaska was known as a place men came to work from all over and women took to joining the sex industry or tending the bar to earn a few quick bucks. This mysterious stalker roaming the streets had plenty of prey. To make it worse, they seemed like a professional when it came to picking up and luring victims. In the early morning of June 13th of 1983, three months after Paula's remains were discovered, Cindy Paulson, age 17, was seen partially dressed and in handcuffs running down an Anchorage highway. She managed to flag down a passing truck and told the driver she was running for her life before he dropped her off at the motel she was currently living in. The desk clerk of the motel called the police, and once they arrived, they removed Cindy's handcuffs and they tried to calm her down, but she was still clearly frightened. Once they asked her what happened, this is when the pieces started falling into place regarding the open investigation of the Kanik River Killer. Oh my god. Well, on the bright side, she survived, and it's a break in the case. She's a first-hand witness who can hopefully point police directly to the killer. Yes, her survival is not only important for her, but also important for potential victims that could be tied to the same man. Right. So what did Cindy have to say? Cindy was a prostitute during the 80s and told the police that she had, and I quote, picked up her first trick that night, also known as a customer. She described him as around six feet tall, wiry, scruffy, wore glasses, and had a profound stutter. He came off as a nice guy, typical customer, and she didn't sense any danger from him, so she got into his vehicle, planning for a regular night. However, as soon as Cindy sat down and shut the car door, the man handcuffed her and put a gun to her head. They drove into a residential neighborhood, and he brought her into his home. The house was well kept, but one thing stood out, all the hunting trophies. In the middle of his den was a chain coming down, and he used it to string Cindy up and stripped her of her clothes. Following this, Cindy would endure rape and torture for hours. The rapist even went to take a nap in the midst of her torture and left her hanging there. Once he woke up, he unchained her and told her he was taking her to his cabin in the wilderness, and if she caused any attention, he would kill her. He went on to say he had an alibi and friends that were willing to lie on his behalf. The next location he took her was the airport, 
where she could see him loading weapons into a small aircraft. She looked around and took this as an opportunity to try and escape her captor. As soon as he entered the aircraft, she opened the back door of the car and started running for her life. Back then, and to this day, law enforcement had a habit of not believing or taking sex workers seriously. However, they could see the genuine terror and fear in her voice, and they knew that they had to look further into this. That's terrifying. Her quick thinking saved her life. It would have been all over if she had gotten on that plane. I grew up learning that if someone is going to kill you, they're going to kill you. So if someone were to threaten me with a gun to go somewhere, I'd rather take my chances and run, or you're going to have to take me out in that exact location. You don't get to choose where I die based off the places you're comfortable with. You and I had very different childhoods. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad the police actually believed her, though. So was she able to lead them to the killer? Cindy was able to describe the location of the residential neighborhood, his den, and the interior of the car and the airport. During her time hanging in the den, she also took notice of all the game on the wall and was able to describe exactly what those animals were to investigators. Cindy needed to get checked out at the hospital, but on the way there, she insisted on stopping at the airport to show them the plane she had seen earlier. She was able to confirm that the plane they were looking at was the one her abductor was loading with guns. While there, a security guard emerged and said that he had seen the car there earlier that morning and was able to secure a license plate number he handed over to the police. This helped confirm the location of the driver's home that Cindy described at the motel. The troopers made their way to the home to ask the owner questions regarding the incident, and to their luck, just minutes after, the same car pulled into the driveway. Fantastic. Case closed. Cindy single-handedly caught a serial killer. You know it's never that easy. (laughs) One can dream. What did this guy have to say for himself? The owner of the car and home, Robert Hansen, a known baker, invited the police into his home and told them his side of the story. He said he went to a friend's house to repair a seat for his airplane between 5 p.m. and 11.30 p.m. Afterwards, he made his way to another friend's home and hung out there until 5.30 a.m. that morning, but once he left, he went to the airport to install the seat. He was very calm, cool, and collected during his questioning and even signed over consent to the police to search his home. Everything was left exactly as Cindy had described, which confirmed she was in the house but did not prove that she was tortured and raped. They weren't able to find any evidence of that. Under a loose wall panel, they found weapons, but this wasn't uncommon for hunters to have a secret stash of guns, so it wasn't alarming to the investigators. The gun, chain, and blanket used on Cindy were nowhere to be found. Like his home, his car was also clean with no evidence found there either. Once all of the alibis were verified, Robert was released from the investigators' care. Cindy did go back to the police station and pointed out Robert in a line of pictures, but refused to take a lie detector test. Being a prostitute, the police have failed them time and time again, and she didn't trust their motives and felt like they would never take her seriously. Shortly after, she left town to get away from all the trauma. Due to Cindy being known to go in and out of town, her occupation, and her unwillingness to take a polygraph test, the case was suspended altogether. That's BS. And here, I was so impressed that the police were actually taking her seriously. Why would the victim need to take a polygraph test? Hasn't she been through enough without being treated like a liar? Why wouldn't they ask Robert to take one? Like, what a double standard. She handed him to the police on a silver platter, but it didn't matter. 
Who is this guy? Robert Christian Hansen, also known as Bob, was born in 1939 in a small town, Estertsville, Iowa, to parents Edna and Christian Hansen. By all accounts, Robert's childhood was a difficult one. His father was a baker and was known as a short-tempered and cruel man who showed him no affection or guidance growing up. Like most kids, this didn't stop Robert from loving his father and looking up to him. He even had a dream of one day following in his dad's footsteps and becoming a baker as well. Robert also had his own physical struggles and disabilities, such as his stutter that followed him into his adult years. This hindered his ability to easily communicate with his peers and classmates, causing him to be incredibly shy and isolate himself from everyone. Robert was tall, skinny, and like most teenagers, suffered from acne and scarring. Whether it was his looks or his lack of confidence, girls often rejected him, which ultimately caused a lot of deep-seated resentment towards women as he got older. There was one thing that brought Robert comfort during the difficult times from his early years, though, and that was big game hunting. Pulling that trigger gave him control and power he desperately craved in his everyday life. He got a thrill out of stalking and killing living beings. Red flags all over the place. He was abused and neglected by his father, rejected by his peers, and enjoyed killing animals. He's off to a great start. So far, he's checking all the serial killer boxes. What about his adult life? As soon as Robert graduated high school, he joined the army, but only served one year before he was discharged, but found work soon after that as a police academy drill sergeant. He got married in 1960 at the age of 21 years old, but that marriage quickly came to an end because later that year, Robert was arrested for arson. He was sentenced to three years for burning down a Pocahontas County Board of Education school bus garage. While in prison, Robert underwent psychiatric evaluations and was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. He ended up serving 20 months before being released in 1962. The following year, he met and married Darla Hinterson, and soon after that, they had two children together. Robert wanted to get away from the bad memories that came with his life in Iowa. He was searching for a sense of peace, and Anchorage, Alaska seemed like the perfect place to find solitude. An added benefit was he would have plenty of opportunities to go big game hunting whenever he pleased. So in 1967, Robert packed up his family of four and relocated to Anchorage. Can't cut it in the military, arson, and serious mental illness. It just keeps piling up. Not exactly the kind of person I would want living next door. Not at all. And with all of that, it's a real talent to blend in with your community. Based off the police not suspecting him, I'm guessing he fit in in Alaska. Once settled, Darla started working as a teacher while Robert followed his dreams of opening up his own bakery that became very successful and quickly won over the locals. Though his family was well-respected, Robert was known to be reserved and quiet, but still came across as friendly and caused no concerns. Whenever he wasn't at the bakery, he was out hunting. With all this practice, he became a highly skilled hunter, and the hunting community in Anchorage had a lot of respect for him. Steph will tell us more about the investigation after a short break. Hey Conjurers, this is Sham. I know my voice might sound a little different, but that's because I'm leaving this message through our Anchor app. We decided to add something special to some of our Season 2 episodes that include you. This link will allow you to leave us a review, tell us about your favorite episode, and what you love about the podcast. It's also available through downloading the Anchor app. 
We want to get to know our followers and where you guys are from. This link will be available on our social media and website. Now, we cannot wait to hear from you guys, but until then, stay vigilant. Now, let's get back to the show. There was one investigator, Officer Greg Baker, who refused to let Cindy's story go. He knew there was still a predator roaming the streets of Anchorage, and he was determined to catch him. The longer they left this case alone, the more victims this killer would claim. The biggest suspect from Cindy's rape and torture was Robert Hansen. The one thing that didn't sit right for Officer Baker the most is the plane he was about to place Cindy on that morning. Cindy told the officer that Robert said, if you cooperate, I'll bring you back after the flight. But Cindy was smart enough to know that there was no coming back once she got on that plane. Officer Baker started putting two and two together and figured he was the perfect suspect for the previous missing dancers as well. Cindy was like, fool me once, shame on you. But fool me twice, it's not happening today. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) She was too smart for that. At least she had one cop on her side. So did Officer Baker end up finding anything? Officer Baker was the only one that took Cindy's case seriously. He knew her story was way too detailed to not have some truth to it. He continued investigating against his supervisors and department's wishes. He found out that Robert had moved to the Anchorage area 16 years prior and had a successful bakery and fit in with the locals. Nothing about him fit the mold of a serial killer. He appeared to be a model citizen. There had been many others that had nothing to lose with no families or jobs that could easily fit the characteristics of a serial killer. It turns out many police actually visited his donut shop often, and it wasn't to keep an eye on him. They liked his shop to grab a bite to eat. Meanwhile, even though the Anchorage PD had suspended the case, the state troopers were still hunting their killer in the woods and uncovering more and more corpses. They had set up a task force to find similarities between all the missing women and their murder victims. If they could find a common thread, it could lead them to a suspect. While investigating, behind the scenes, troopers took to the streets to educate sex workers on being aware of a maniac roaming Anchorage, whose goal was to abduct and kill, and how to stay safe. For the first time, it seemed as if police and prostitutes were on the same side and had a little bit of trust between the two. Well, that's something you don't see every day. The police working together with sex workers to protect them? That's unheard of. That is exactly what should happen in these situations. Instead of blaming the targeted victims, teach potential victims how to be safe. Maybe there would be more trust for police if there was more of this kind of community involvement. Oh, definitely. So now the women are aware and a step ahead of the killer. What's going on with the investigation? Back at the Anchorage PD office, Officer Baker was able to find Robert's criminal history, and it was extensive. Twelve years earlier, he had been arrested twice for kidnapping, rape, and assault with a deadly weapon. All of these crimes resembled exactly what Cindy had gone through the night of her abduction. Since the case was suspended by his superiors, he wasn't able to bring this to anyone in his department at least not without suffering the consequences of going against direct orders. He knew he couldn't sit on all the information he found, so he packed it all up and handed it over to the troopers, hoping it would help their ongoing case. And it did. Once the troopers received this information, 
Cindy's testimony, and Robert's police record, it made Robert the prime suspect in the case. The biggest issue was Robert's record made him capable of sexual assault, but it didn't necessarily indicate he was capable of homicide. And there was no evidence linking Cindy to any of the women's remains found near the Knick River. The troopers still didn't have enough evidence to get a search warrant. They just knew four girls were dead and 12 were missing and more were sure to follow if they didn't get help to stop this murderer. The troopers' next step was to go to the FBI facility in Virginia and get the expertise they needed to get inside the killer's mind. It's just frustrating because some of these officers know that Robert is the closest thing they have to a suspect, and with all this time he has been a free man, it's giving him more time to cover up his tracks. Who knows how many women he could kill in this time? But at least they're doing something. So when you said they contacted the FBI to get inside the killer's mind, I'm curious to know what that entails. Yeah, so at this facility, they work on predicting behavioral patterns by analyzing a criminal's actions. FBI profiler John Douglas has interviewed criminals for 25 years, and all that exposure taught John how to think like they do. He stated that serial killers often act out their fantasies with control and conquest. Agent John's way of working with his clients is to eventually gain their trust, then slowly have them take him back to the scene of their crime. Profilers think of things most of us don't. For example, most serial killers had a habit of torturing and killing animals at a young age. Upon examining a crime scene, profilers can figure out the suspect's age, occupation, and physical characteristics. We have given many examples on this show and know that if someone harms or murders animals as children, they're likely going to murder an actual human as an adult. Absolutely. Profiling is so interesting to me. The characteristics and information they can gather purely through psychology is amazing. Okay, I know if you listen to this show and you're a true crime fanatic, you've likely stomached watching Don't F with Cats on Netflix. Well, investigators knew the moment they saw that video of him murdering those cats that they were dealing with a serial killer. So, what all did they find? Based on the resources provided to the FBI from the Alaska State Troopers, the profile they were able to build included the following. The killer was prolific, which meant he could keep a low profile in the community he was living in. It was someone who worked independently and would likely own a business of their own. Since the bodies were found in remote areas in the wilderness, the suspect had to be an avid outdoorsman. He preyed on prostitutes that wouldn't question giving him the time of day because of their occupation, which made it clear to the profilers that he struggled talking to women, had low self-esteem, and was likely an outcast. While comparing his profile to similar ones, Agent John gave one specific characteristic. He said the killer would either have a speech defect or a profound stutter. He would likely have a history of arson. It was a clear description of Robert Hansen. That's the coolest job ever. (laughs) In the most insane results, like they described Robert to a T. Right? Down to the stutter. All of this information had to lead to something. There's no way the profile could have been ignored. You would think. But even with the FBI profile and Robert's history, the evidence was all circumstantial, and it still wasn't enough to charge him. So the state troopers reached out to Robert's only surviving victim, Cindy. She was able to ID Robert's gun from the night she was abducted. 
They also reached out to another 17-year-old victim similar to Cindy that Robert had abducted years prior, who agreed to testify once Robert was charged. It was clear to Robert around this time in the investigation that police were on to him. Officer Baker described driving by the shop and seeing him through the bakery window. He said Robert kept looking up at him and came off as very nervous. Due to the lack of evidence to tie Robert to the crimes, FBI agent John flew to Alaska to brief the state troopers on how to catch Robert based on his characteristics. The plan was to bring Robert in for questioning while another set of troopers go to his home to search it. In order to get the search warrant they needed, they would have to list specific items that they might find that are linked to the crimes. They listed the gun used on Cindy Paulson and identical bullets to the ones they found on the remains in the woods. Even this wasn't enough, but they went on to write a 48-page affidavit to the judge convincing him that Robert was the guy, and the judge granted the state troopers eight search warrants for Robert's property. Finally, something is happening, and they've got to find something at Robert's property. Even though he had a lot of time to get rid of things. Especially if he thought they were onto him. So when did they contact him? The troopers had been studying Robert's schedule and knew exactly when to pick him up for questioning. 20 minutes after they arrived at his bakery, Robert showed up for work and they moved in to arrest him. He went with the troopers calmly, the picture of cooperation. Agent John had helped design the interrogation room in hopes of having the biggest psychological impact on Robert. They placed a lot of evidence from the bodies found near the river in the room including photos of the victims and maps where the bodies were found. The interrogation they all had been waiting for had finally begun. Two troopers began asking him questions that would start up the conversation, then ask him specific questions regarding the crime scene. All Robert would talk about is the information regarding his past criminal record that he knew police had access to, and his terrible upbringing. He spoke of picking up prostitutes in the late 70s and how it angered him that they were always raising their prices, but he denied harming or threatening any of them and admitted to nothing. While the interrogation was taking place at the police station, another team had served Robert's wife with a search warrant and began searching their home. They even went as far as checking his bakery and airplane, but both of those locations came up clean. Something about sex workers raising their prices and that angering him doesn't sit right with me. Huge red flag. Absolutely. This guy's thorough, though. Okay, so he cleaned his car and the plane. What about the house? Yes. So back at the house, in the upstairs bedroom, they had finally found the evidence they needed. It was a map that included the Knick River and the surrounding area, and on that map was 37 red X's. They then made their way up to the attic where they found the rifles that killed Sherry and Paula and the gun used to threaten Cindy. The next piece of evidence was Sherry's necklace. Remember, her boyfriend claimed she never took it off. They also found copious amounts of jewelry belonging to other deceased women. There was one last piece of evidence that would unravel Robert's innocence as the investigators were leaving his home. Robert's neighbor came outside and asked to speak to them. She stated that her husband provided the alibi for Robert the night Cindy was abducted and that he lied to protect his friend and didn't know the seriousness of the crime. Her husband soon called the police to retract his statement, which left Robert with no alibi. Damn, 
His neighbor did not want to be dragged into this. But you should never offer an alibi to the police unless it's a true one. You can get charged with obstructing justice, and that leads to a misdemeanor or a felony depending on the crime. Never lie for anyone. You never really know a person or what they might have done. Please tell me everything they found from that map to the jewelry was enough to get him locked up. Yes. Now they had enough to lock him up on the Cindy Paulson case while they built a case against him as a serial killer. On the map, three of the X's found matched the location the troopers had found bodies, and one X matched the location of another body discovered years earlier. They had to assume that the rest of the X's were Robert keeping track of his body count. They pulled Robert and his lawyer in for questioning and showed him all the evidence linked to the four victims. With such overwhelming information, Robert wasn't able to talk his way out of this one, and he knew it. Robert tried to make a deal with the troopers that included only confessing to the murders they could prove. In exchange, he requested no media coverage, security for his family, and to be placed in a prison outside of Alaska when all this is over. He agreed to show the troopers where more bodies were buried in exchange for only being charged with the four convictions. This means Robert wouldn't have to face trial and would go straight to sentencing. There was no need for witnesses. During his confession, Robert stated how he had hunted his victims as prey, that he had raped over 30 women in 12 years living in Alaska, and the many strategies he had developed to capture them. In Sherry Morrow's case, he befriended her and told her to meet him at a fast food location. Upon arriving, he sat in his car to make sure the victim came alone and there were no witnesses. He played off her aspirations of being a model and took advantage of offering to take pictures of her. Once he got his victims to his car, one part of the handcuff would already be attached to the door so it was easier to grab their arm and cuff them all while reaching for his gun to control them. It's so sad that these men use something like wanting to support your modeling career in order to manipulate you. Cindy had no idea her life was in danger. And this guy knew exactly what he was doing because he's done it many times before. It's disgusting. Like I said before, if she had taken someone with her, he would have just left and her life would have been saved. Never meet up with a stranger alone. Like ever. And how did his wife not know about this? I mean, he literally took some of these girls home. He had pre-planned when he would take his victims home by sending his family on vacations. However, when they were home, he would take them to a remote motel where he would proceed to rape and torture them. Afterwards, just like Cindy, he would put them back into his car and blindfold them. Either he drove them to the plane where he would fly them into the middle of the woods or drive them to the place he referred to as his hunting ground. He would often taunt the women and give them a head start to run from him before he hunted them down like they were prey and disposed of them in the wilderness. That is so sick and twisted. He gave these girls a moment where they felt like they might survive this only to take that away in an instant. He knew the location like the back of his hand and these girls just knew they were somewhere in the woods. It's so twisted, a horror movie was made about it back in 2013 called The Frozen Ground. I'm pretty sure I seen that movie and it was terrifying. I just need to know, what was his sentencing like? On February 27th, 1984, Robert Christian Hansen 
was convicted of the murder of four women and was sentenced to 461 years plus life with no parole. Once sentenced, he accompanied the state troopers to show them where other victims were buried. They located eight more victims, however other grave sites had been completely destroyed by animals, which had scattered their remains. It was clear to investigators that Robert was responsible for at least 17 to 21 victims. In 1988, Robert Christian Hansen was briefly incarcerated at Lemon Creek Correctional Center in Juneau. He was then imprisoned at Spring Creek Correctional Center in Seward until May 2014, when he was transferred to the Anchorage Correctional Complex for health reasons. This is where he died on August 21, 2014, of natural causes, due to lingering health conditions after serving only 31 years at the age of 71. Sex workers deserve the same protection as any other occupation out there. They're often seen as women that deserve to be sexually assaulted or murdered due to the life they chose. However, rape is rape and no is no under all circumstances. We even struggled to find any information at all about who these women were when researching this case. It's as if no one cared about their hopes and dreams or the fact that they were real people with complex lives. Robert knew how to choose his prey and made many women feel hopeless in his sick game of control and manipulation, and he had no plans of stopping. Robert Christian Hansen had no idea that the hunter was being hunted, and in the end, the Alaskan state troopers were the ones who ended up with the biggest trophy of all. Most crimes need the community's help to solve. For that, there's Crime Stoppers. Crime Stoppers is entirely anonymous, and the process of calling Crime Stoppers is simple. If you have knowledge of a crime, call 1-877-903-STOP, which puts you in contact with the Crime Stoppers Command Center. An operator will answer the phone and take down the information you wish to provide. They will never ask for your name, number, address, or any other identifying information. You can also place a tip on the website from the Tip Submit button on the main page, or you can download the P3 Tips app. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Cham. Editing of this episode was done by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Alina. Be sure to check out our Instagram at crimeandconjurepodcast for our question of the week. If you like our podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Even better, leave us a voicemail, which just might get featured on the show. You can find that link on our website. Sham, what is our conjure tip of the week? This week, we want to talk about the ash tree. It's a great protection plant, especially if you're near or on water. If you want to ward off bad spirits, you can hang a piece of ash in the doorway of your home. And if you feel like your whole house needs protection, you can use wood chips from an ash tree. If you set your intentions strongly enough while this plant is in your possession, it will protect you from harm. This plant is also used for purification rituals and healing wands. It doesn't hurt to have a little extra protection. In many cultures, the ash tree is considered sacred and believed to be connected to the gods. Another great addition for any metaphysical toolbox. Okay, conjurers, come back on Sunday for a special Valentine's Day bonus episode. Until Until next time, time, stay stay vigilant, vigilant, conjurers. conjurers.